This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 70, Thinking Bigger, How the Economy Affects Us All. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your hosts, Mark Willis and Holly Bach, invite you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Guys, I've been waiting all my life for this episode. I can't wait to get into the content with you. I am uh, your host, Mark Willis, and with me as always is the lovely Holly Bach. Welcome, Holly. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. All right. So we've got two very, very brief announcements I want to jump into, the first of which uh, I'm doing a workshop for the Amazon Legends Group on January 19th at 10 a.m. Central Time. Uh, So if you want to be a part of that private webinar, uh, you'll have to be a member of their group. They're an incredible e-commerce group that's just blowing it up. Uh, now that Q4 is over, they're wondering how they're going to pay all their taxes. So this this workshop will be strategies for, you know, if we can't avoid the tax that we earned last year, how can we pay it in the very best way possible? So you were going to just be blown away, but you do have to be a private member of that group. Uh, to join, go to amzlegends.com. That's A-M-Z-L-E-G-E-N-D-S.com. Or email hello at not your, well, let's see, it's hello at nyafinancialpodcast.com. That's hello at nyafinancialpodcast.com. The other quick uh, little bit of uh, business to take care of here, uh, if you're in the Chicagoland area and you want to see us live, uh, as opposed to not alive, I guess, is the uh, alternative there. Uh, but if you want to see us live and in person, uh, I'll be doing two workshops for the general public. Uh, so it's completely free to listeners of this podcast. So I'll be speaking at the uh, in Glen Ellen, Illinois, at their fine library at uh, on January 29th and 30th from 6.30 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. So seating is pretty limited, and I, I'm already being told that it will be sold out. So if you would like to get a reservation for you or your friends to hear some of the concepts and strategies in person, or even to ask us questions live, go to uh, RSVP for the event. You can go to lakegrowth.com slash events. That's L-A-K-E-G-R-O-W-T-H dot com slash events. Or you can email us at hello at nyafinancialpodcast.com. So those are my announcements. Let's jump into this. So This episode is really, I think, both about your internal uh, economy and the external economy. Okay, so, and no, we're not talking about your microbiome here. So your internal economy is the way you think. Determining your inputs, determining your formula, your worldview, those will eventually shape your outputs. And in other words, the conclusions and the actions that you take. So again, it starts with what's in between your ears and it works itself out in the actions that you're taking. Let's go to, oh, the Middle, uh, middle Ages, let's say. So this is something that I was sort of pondering the other day. Just the incredible, I, I don't know if I'd want to say waste here, but you know the, 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 the industry and the, the um, study of alchemy was literally practiced on this planet by lots and lots of people for hundreds of years, okay? Alchemy was this ancient practice that was really shrouded in mystery and secrecy. Uh, the practitioners mainly sought a way to turn lead into gold because, of course, gold was way more valuable than lead. And that was a quest that just captured the imaginations of people for many, many years. However, the goals of alchemy went way beyond just 
creating some golden nuggets. They were also really interested in uh, a complex spiritual worldview where everything around us had some sort of like universal spirit. Metals were believed to be alive and they would grow under the ground. I mean, it was really crazy. Uh, So when a base or like a common metal like lead was found, it was thought that if you just kind of mixed it with other things, both physical and spiritual items, somehow that lead would turn into gold. Of course, the use of gold to make more gold would have seemed entirely logical to alchemists, almost like, you know, if you plant some corn seed in the ground, you're going to grow more corn. It was sort of like that. So, uh, you know, using germs of wheat to grow an entire wheat field, sort of. Uh, Alchemy shows up in some pretty weird places. Uh, For example, I was doing some study on this, and even Isaac Newton, all right, so the guy who's kind of known for his, you know, real um, study of gravity and the laws of motion and real actual science, he wrote more than a million words of um, alchemy, like notes on alchemy throughout his lifetime. Historians have you know, kind of double-checked this and estimated it's around a million words of, of writings on stuff that just plain isn't true. <laughs> so imagine all that work, like all that effort that the, the, the one and only Isaac Newton uh, put his heart and soul and mind to. And this practice of alchemy was pursued per- fervently by super smart people. And they were probably many alchemists who had their fathers spend their entire lives doing alchemy and the grandfather before him and before him as well. They were probably respected in the city squares, right? They were probably awarded big, big awards. Uh, alchemists have no doubt uh, won uh, awards at alchemy conventions and the uh, alchemy awards. Is that Academy Alchemy <laughs> Awards? I don't know. Uh, and so had super long debates, extemporaneous debates over more nuanced parts of this law of alchemy. You know, how much ink has been spilt? How much time has been wasted on this pseudoscience? I mean, it, it's totally false. And so it really just got me sort of bothered, I guess, but also just sort of uh, aware that we can dive deep into topics that may or may not even be real. Um, so it was based on a misunderstanding. At the end of the day, you know, chemists looking back on alchemy, looking at it now, we can kind of see it was, it was based on just true misunderstandings of how chemistry works and physics and reality. <laughs> so alchemists based their theories and experiments on this Aristotelian assumption that the world and everything in it composed of basically the four elements, air, earth, fire, and water. No, not the old 70s band. We're talking about uh, air, earth, fire, and water, along with three other essential substances, salt, mercury, and sulfur. So, of course, we know today that the universe is made up of, you know, atoms, elements, uh, the elemental table, for example. And since lead and other metals are not composed of these four fire, air, earth, water, it's just not possible to adjust the percentages of one air or fire to turn lead into gold, uh, unfortunately. Sorry, Isaac Newton, to give you that bad news. So what does all this mean? Okay, so people devote their entire lives to this. Basically, it was a waste of time. (laughs) Uh, People assumed that alchemists were going to be the saviors. They were going to be, you know, making us all incredibly wealthy. They were the arbiters of truth and that you could lean on them to turn your lead into gold. So how does this have anything to do with our situation today in finance, Holly? Bring us bring us closer to home. Yeah. So really, you know, what does this have to do? Well, it's it's kind of this idea that we will do the same things with our finances. So we assume that the economic alchemists today are going to keep us in a bull market forever. Well, 
Who are those people? Well, they're the Federal Reserve, mainstream economists, technical analysts, you name it. Um, we kind of have this this idea that, you know, we trust these alchemists of sorts, modern day alchemists, to just keep everything great and turn lead into gold by maintaining a perfect economic situation for us for all time. Um, we think that by tinkering with, you know, the Fed and then with the interest rates or the latest stimulus or tax reform that we can actually change the economy. And really, it's like magicians from medieval periods, you know, trying to turn lead into gold. Okay, so how do we spend our lives not living in the falsehood of alchemy or anything else in the financial world? How do you test your assumptions? Well, we can use things like the scientific method to test and verify uh, the truth from fiction. So, you know, I'm going all the way back to high school here, our dear listeners. So, you know, work with me here. But what happens to your current portfolio if markets transform over the course of this week or this month? Um, you know, what if folks are in line to get bread next week or next month or getting $100 out of their ATM uh, in line for that? Did you prepare well? Did your money do what you wanted it to do in that, fin in that financial chemistry experiment, so to speak? What about your money? Does your portfolio have the resilience of a golden market? Uh, or is it going to turn into poisonous lead? <laughs> See what I did there? Did you like that? <laughs> um, true chemistry as opposed to alchemy is about combining elements together. Okay, so when we've got uh, combining elements together, we also need it to be inside an environment. So we can have hydrogen atoms in this room, oxygen atoms in this room but it won't turn into water, H2O, unless there's a little bit of electricity that will create that water. Um, so without the environment of electricity, there's no water, just a bunch of molecules bouncing around. So when you put your financial plan, your hydrogen, your oxygen, whatever, into a financial environment like a recession or a bull economy, it's gonna cause a reaction. Things happen in the overall economy. So when I pour baking soda into a bowl of vinegar, it's going to do something different than if it's inside a bowl of water, right? So it matters the environment in which your money lives. Alchemy in your financial life can lead to false assumptions. It can lead to terrible outcomes. If you bought stocks only when the market is up and sell when the market's down, then you're going to end up not with a lot of cash. If that's your goal, then that's great. Uh, I'm always willing to take, you know, uh, take advice from folks that are wanting to uh, buy when the market is down and sell when the market is high. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and Tell us a bit about this study that, that you came across, Holly. Yeah, and you don't want your financial future to unexpectedly blow up or to be built upon Wall Street's soothsayers and prognosticators. Um, a study done by Cambridge University put a portion, um, they, Cambridge University did this study, and they decided to put a portion of their endowment fund kind of in an experiment. So uh, the money that they set aside for this, they did 20% of their money in a federally insured bank just savings account, regular savings account. And then the other 80%, they did a random collection of stocks from around the world picked by monkeys. Wait a minute. <laughs> yes. So they let- Straight up, straight up monkeys. monkeys. Okay, all right, yep. all right. So they let monkeys pick out- I'm not sending know, my daughter to Cambridge University. <laughs> all right. No, this was a study. They did a study. Okay. Um, and in 2014, according to Hedge, Hedge Fund Research Incorporated, the average genius hedge fund had lost 0.6%. Meanwhile, stocks picked by monkeys gained 2.3%. I can't even believe we're talking about this right now. Are you serious? Yeah. Okay. All right. Yep. So that was 2014. What about 2013? Yeah. So 2013, the average hedge fund earned 6.7%. The monkeys account did three times better, earning 21%. 
my jaw is dropped. <laughs> I have no words here. And then in 2012, it's even worse. Uh, the monkeys beat the hedge fund by nearly four to one, earning 3% compared to their 3.5%. So 13% compared to the hedge fund professional money managers at 3.5%. That is, that's just crazy. That's just crazy. Okay, so where do I sign up for this monkey fund? <laughs> <laughs> right, they're doing pretty well. I mean, they're positive when everyone else is wow. negative, doing 21%. Yeah. So maybe we just need to replace our investment advisors and hedge fund managers with baboons, okay? <laughs> so the high priests of Wall Street, the alchemists of Wall Street uh, are being shown to basically be, uh, you know, following a false science. Uh, so the good news is you're at the tail end of a long period of lots of experiments. You're not at the starting point of alchemy. You've actually been given the chance to see both uh, you know, the false science of alchemy and the true science of chemistry with your finances. So people have been putting money into certain asset classes, different elements, you might say, for many times, hundreds or even thousands of years, Wall Street, real estate, and even whole life insurance, as we talk about on this uh, podcast. Which plan will lead to the outcomes you're looking for? What environments do you see your future ha uh, experiencing? What environment is our nation headed to? Uh, there's been some recent turbulence in the market. So what's, what's it going to look like uh, in various asset classes? Uh, let's look at how the chemistry of those asset classes, like real estate and so forth, combine with the uh, environment of certain economic futures. That's what we'd like to spend a little bit of time looking at together today. So some changes in our economy, the environment in which your money lives, okay? So that's the, the uh, bowl of vinegar, you might say, if you're pouring a bunch of uh, baking soda in. So at the time of this recording, there have been uh, multiple gyrations to the uh, economic chemistry experiment, multiple ingredients added. Here's just a quick list, okay? So we've got increased probability of a global economic slowdown. That's been reported by a number of different news outlets. We've got the U.S.-China uh, US trade uh, spat that's going back and forth. We've got the U.S. Federal Reserve's love me or hate me approach to interest rates. They're going to raise it this quarter down uh, the next quarter. And even if we go into a recession, they don't have a lot of uh, capital to really pull down the interest rates like they did in previous recessions. Um, you know, they really don't have a lot of ammunition there. Uh, there's obviously there's Eurozone debt problems and the, the insanity around Brexit. There's the shadow banking uh, and tons of incredible, incredible business predatory lending. I've got some upcoming stuff that I'd like to pre present on one of these episodes on how businesses are being taken advantage of through predatory lending. Mm -hmm. We also have a slowing housing market and declining home values in many areas of the country. Mm. We have the highest corporate household and national debt in history. So so how is all that debt going to play out? I mean, you know, like the day of reckoning, you know, it's going to have to happen at some point. And then we also have a bitterly divided government. Um, so those are just some of the things that are kind of at play, you know, today um, that could potentially shape, mold and change the uh, economic environment in which our financial strategies are playing out. Um, and so we wanted to spend kind of the rest of our episode going over a couple different scenarios that could possibly we could possibly see in our lifetime um, as a result of maybe some of these above things we just mentioned um, playing out. And so the first one we wanted to jump into is a decline in the dollar. So this is kind of a specific um, action that I guess we're kind of at risk of happening at one any point. One of the point. environments, yeah. Yeah, one mm -hmm. of the environments. So, um, you know, Mark, how do you see 
if that particular environment came about, you know, what what do you see that looking like? Well, it's hard to even imagine. What does decline in a dollar mean? Does that mean I'm like dropping money out of my pocket? I don't understand. So uh, first, let me define it. The exchange rate is a price. So the price of money. I know that sounds weird, but when I when the price of milk goes down, that's good for families, but really bad for dairy farmers. So when gas prices fall, commuters are happy, but ExxonMobil, of course, would be sad. Uh, let's, you know, if, if it can be sad, I don't quite understand. Um, <laughs> but uh, when the dollar drops in value, there are also going to be winners and losers. Okay. So this has happened plenty of times in the past. In 2009, when the dollar was just getting beat up, Central bank, uh, banks in Asian countries were actively buying dollars to stop the fall against their own currency. So, you know, uh, nation exporters don't, uh, can't handle that drop in profitability if the dollar drops too far. The dollar strengthened after the presidential election because, you know, a lot of investors expected Mr. Trump and congressional Republicans to increase this domestic growth by fulfilling a bunch of campaign promises like, you know, tax reform and reducing regulations, other things like that. The reversal of those gains reflects, uh, I think, some maybe some diminished confidence that Mr. Trump is going to be able to deliver on some of those promises that uh, and is shown from the decline in the dollar uh, that's tumbled from 2016 to 2017. That's sort of the environment we're in right now. Mm -hmm. And so then how do we see that play out in some of the different financial, you know, kind of strategies that are out there? Uh, Many people are invested in real estate. That's kind of their um, financial strategy. So how does that play out in the event or in the environment of a decline in the dollar? Um, So if that were to happen, we would see home prices go up. So home uh, prices would go higher and that would get international real estate investors to buy more U.S. property. Uh, meaning it would be even less affordable for us consumers uh, to purchase our own real estate. Hmm. Um, A steep fall on the dollar would would improve the ability for overseas buyers to pay higher prices. Um, It would also mean the fall in the value of U.S. Treasuries, which dries up Treasury yields and mortgage interest rates. So that would start to play into this too, which means the price of buying that home with mortgage debt would go up dramatically. Okay, so... In essence, if you believe the alchemy that home prices only go up and that's always a good thing, Mm -hmm. in the event of a decline in the dollar, that actually becomes a bad thing for us. Interesting, fascinating stuff. All right, so Wall Street is affected also through a decline on the dollar. So there'd be winners. Uh, The winners of the American company, uh, are American companies that are going to be selling goods and services to foreigners. Think of like uh, the company Caterpillar right here in Illinois. Uh, they manufacture stuff for all over the world. Uh, tourist attractions like Disney World, technology companies like Facebook, uh, because those customers can exchange their currency for more dollars. So that'll be those will be some of the winners. The losers would be the American consumers who have to pay a bunch more to go to Disney World or to, to you know, um, work on uh, their their backyard home, right? So uh, the worst case scenario, the portfolio is made up of shares. Uh, You know, if you've got a portfolio on Wall Street made up mostly of shares that rely heavily on imported raw materials, energy, commodities to make money, a substantial portion of the manufacturing sector of the U.S. economy is going to depend on a bunch of raw materials brought in from overseas to create the finished goods. So if the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar goes down, it's going to cost manufacturers more than it did last year to buy those same goods, which puts a bunch of pressure on the profit margins and ultimately their bottom lines. So the likely scenario here 
is if your portfolio is probably diversely selected uh, among a, a lot of companies, uh, and if it's not overweight in any one sector, then you'll probably see both a pro, you know a, a loss and a gain, just depending on how your uh, portfolio is weighted. Uh, now, what about whole life insurance? How is that going to be affected by the decline in the dollar? Yeah, so particular to the bank on yourself strategy that we talk about on this podcast, um, you know, how is that affected by this particular environment? Um, and because the growth of a bank on yourself type policy is exponential, it does provide some built-in protection against inflation. Um, in addition, since your premiums stay level as times as time goes on, you are paying with deflated dollars. So that's actually kind of nice. Um, if the dollar does devalue, as the gurus predict, uh, doesn't it make even more sense to have your money in a financial vehicle that grows faster than conven- conventional vehicles? Uh, again, if the dollar devalues, all dollars will devalue. Even the ones in conven- conventional financial vehicles like mutual funds, 401ks, your home, etc. Uh, the only difference is that those vehicles don't lock in equity like the bank on yourself strategy or like a whole life insurance policy does. So when the vo- value of the dollar does decrease, conventional financial investments will lose their value exponentially. Why? Um, both the dollars going in are worthless and the equity already gained decreases too because the equ- equity is still influenced by the market until you take it out of that account, which removes it from the risk. Of course, that money taken out is no longer working for you at the same time too. So in Bank on Yourself, our equity is locked in. It's earned without risk, a multi-layer safety net, and once earned, it's still not influenced by market risks. So if the dollar drops, doesn't it make sense to have it in a vehicle like Bank on Yourself? Yeah, that's, well, that's so. you said so many good things there. I hope our listeners will go back and hear what you just said again. Um, so for sake of time, we'll keep moving. Uh, what about the environment of hyperinflation? So that's the opposite of maybe a decline in the dollar. We're, and we're going to get into deflation here soon. But the second environment that I wanted to look at is uh, hyperinflation. I get this one a lot with all the printing of money we've gone through over the last 10 plus years. So the first question to ask is, first, uh, what is an inflation hedge? And two, what makes a good inflation hedge? The first answer is pretty simple. An inflation hedge is just a place to park your money, an asset that loses only a little bit of value in periods of rising rising prices, or hopefully no loss of value, right? Uh, and it holds its value after purchasing power uh, and, and its purchasing power through inflation. So this also applies when there's hyperinflation. So super fast increases in the cost of money. An investor expecting inflation uh, will buy this asset to hedge against inflation. Uh, so the second question to ask around uh, inflation hedges uh, requires really just two things, real assets and financial assets. So real assets have intrinsic value. They have a value all their own. They have surrender value. They have sellable value. The people uh, that use them, people value them for those direct and indirect usefulnesses like real assets like uh, books, TVs, cars, wheat, gold, real estate, land, etc. Mm-hmm. And so now back to real estate. So yeah. how is real estate affected by hyperinflation? So in general, like you just described, Mark, real assets hedge better than paper assets. 
So by definition, real assets have a value of their own. So inflation does not erode their value. Uh, therefore, any real estate or any real asset can be an inflation hedge. And so it follows that real estate is also a hedge, but it's maybe not the best. So hyperinflation will first cause a change in commodities prices, food, gas, etc., and then credit. So being that interest rates are going to jump in a, in a hyperinflation setting, we will then see real estate prices collapse. Being that loan terms are typically shorter on commercial loans and commercial properties such as office space, retail, and so they're gonna start losing their tenants and, and then cause a collapse faster than residential due to the loss of net operating income for the, the stores to then uh, pay their rent and the economic backing to support their own businesses. Wow. It's huge. Yep. And then similarly with uh, Wall Street, uh, they're also affected by hyperinflation. In the, the environment of hyperinflation, uh, the ingredients of uh, Wall Street would see interest rates rise on bonds, savings accounts, and other safer places to put money. Uh, so why in the world would we put all of our money in a risk-focused uh, risk asset like Wall Street to get a good rate of return? So a lot of folks are going to flee the market and seek safety, which would cause the real estate market to crash, and they'd be able to keep money in, in uh, CDs, bonds, and other safer assets. However, at the same time, companies are going to be benefited from higher prices. You know, if, you're, if you own Apple stock and then the price of the iPhone goes to like $5,000, up from $4,000 or whatever it is today, just go, just getting there, uh, <laughs> Apple's going to make a lot more money. And the price, of course, of their stock would go up. However, probably the most insidious way that hyperinflation just pummels Wall Street, uh, if it's left unchecked, inflation would spike and then would ultimately cause an econ uh, the economy to slow down quickly and unemployment to increase. Uh, that combination with rising inflation and unemployment is something really devastating called stagflation. That's something that's truly feared by economists, central bankers, pretty much everybody, <laughs> because there's really no way to get out of that. Uh, and it's very difficult to. Uh, and the last time we saw that is uh, in the 19, late 1970s. Mm -hmm. Now, what about um, whole life insurance and hyperinflation? Wouldn't we? What, what would happen in that environment? Yeah. So most insurance companies have their assets in long-term investment-grade fixed-income assets. So things like corporate bonds. Um, so when inflation drives up interest rates, rates on new bonds typically rise, and that would actually increase the dividends to us policyholders. Nice. So if interest cool. rates go up, then dividend rates um, also typically will go up. Now, dividend rates, you know, in the, in the last period of stagflation, we saw them in the range of mortgage rates, you know, 15 to 18 percent. Um, so, but they do typically t trail prevailing interest rate environment by a few years. So if we did, you know, kind of go into an overnight hyperinflation, your policy would be playing catch up for a couple years. It'd be a couple years before you'd actually see that reflected on your uh, dividend because the insurance company has to actually buy those bonds at the higher rates. And then we, they have to start having that income come in to create more profit, which then creates more dividend. Well said. And so the, the next one we're going to look at is deflation. Now, deflation is a fall in the general price level or a contraction of credit and available money. So it's the opposite of inflation. So we are so bathed in inflation these days, it's almost hard to imagine this. So, But when dollars are becoming more scarce, it's important to keep a steady income. So think income is king with deflation. Every paycheck is like a pay raise in a deflationary environment. So a dependable source of income will boom in this environment. 
It also makes you know things like bonds more and more valuable. Uh, so if insurance companies need to sell a bond, you know, for example, um, they can do so uh, at a higher price. Although they typically hold those to maturity. So mm-hmm. let's again let's look at real estate. How is that affected by deflation? Yeah. So if you go out and you buy a house and use a mortgage to buy that house, then you are employing this thing called leverage. And leverage is an important tool in the world of finance because it allows you to take a small amount of money and use it to control an asset worth a larger amount. So you're leveraging your smaller kind of you know, pool of money to be able to get access to something of greater value. So owning real estate in an environment with deflation is not a bad thing. It's only dangerous if you're using leverage through a mortgage. Leverage is the danger, not the real estate itself. Um, Don't use leverage with a negative inflation rate or deflation because this would actually cause a negative compounding effect. Um, However, if you have a renter in your real estate and you can keep them through the deflationary period, then you actually win in this environment because income is king in this environment. So dollars are getting rarer, thus more valuable. But, you know, the big question is going to be is, will the renter be able to afford your rent? Will they be able to stay? Or will you perhaps have to lower the rent um, for your tenant? Yeah, that's pretty likely. Uh, Otherwise, we'd be out of uh, tenants and then income goes to zero. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wall Street's also affected by deflation. If rising prices are a symptom of monetary inflation, then deflation and sinking prices would be awesome, right? Imagine you're, if you just waited two weeks, your, your television set would be 100 bucks cheaper. Or if you waited two months, you'd, it'd be 300 bucks cheaper. That's kind of the idea of, you know, so no one's buying anything in an inflation, deflationary environment. Well, if no one's buying anything, then everyone is laid off because there's no one to sell you that TV. And the problem just gets worse and worse. So there's fewer people with paychecks and fewer people who can buy things. So deflation has that opposite effect of inflation. It encourages people just to sit on their money and save. Uh, Imagine if the money you had in your checking account and wallet uh, appreciated over time. Imagine that. If it appreciated over time, you wouldn't need any investment requirements uh, to grow your money. Imagine if your money gained value instead of losing value, not because the bank was paying you an interest rate, but just because there were fewer dollars out there to buy stuff next year. Imagine if instead of causing uh, cashing in on a stock, you waited uh, for your money to just mature a little bit and then just sit on that money long enough and you can make the big purchase that way. Inflation strong arms everyday people into gambling. That's what inflation has done the last 50 plus years as we've had inflation. And deflation disincentivizes us to jump on the Wall Street bandwagon and that would cause stocks to fall. Mm-hmm. And so then uh, how about whole life? Kind of to finish off our um, kind of our last thing here, looking at real estate, Wall Street and whole life insurance. So um, dividends, as we know, are paid on whole life insurance policies, and those can provide the income that you would want in a deflationary environment. Uh, it also has a guaranteed cash accumulation. So even if dividends stop being paid, like the scenario of your renters moving out, or maybe um, there's not the you know profits for the insurance company to be paying out, so they can um, they can choose to not pay out the optional mm-hmm. non-guaranteed dividend. Right. Um, and 
But even if they did that, you would still have more cash value this year than you had last year. And so that kind of income, uh, you know, that income you'd have coming in can actually provide protection in the event of def- deflation. Wow. Okay. So even if they stop paying dividends, and, and that's a situation that hasn't happened in over a century or longer, as long as most of these companies we recommend have been in business, even if they stopped paying dividends, we've still got guaranteed cash value accumulation, more money this year than we had last year. Mm-hmm. Love that. So as we wrap this up, again, it comes down to knowing your chemistry, uh, knowing the true scientific method, (laughs) looking at the experiments that our world has gone through over the last 50, 75, 100, 150 years. Don't, you know, certainly don't take the uh, Alchemides uh, advice that you can just turn the Wall Street lead into financial gold. It's, incent- it's totally essential that you make up your own mind here and look at what the actual results have been. If you want to end up where you want to go, if you want to achieve your financial milestones, it's truly just core to the bottom of, of uh, everything else in your financial plan that you are using the true outcomes, the, the scientific experiments, chemistry rather than alchemy, and uh, listening to the true uh, arbiters rather than just uh, someone who's wanting to turn lead into gold. So thank you, everybody. This has been a fun episode for me. We got deep into the weeds. I hope it was a lot of fun for you, too. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join a financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.